Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. A roast as dark as the night, perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes, he's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of spring Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. Everybody, it's your wacky wizard Holden. Holden? Oh, weird. That's weird. You got blood coming out of your whole face. Anyway, that's weird. That's odd. Anyway, uh, I'm your battling bruiser. <laughs> How long are we gonna let this bit go on for, Jake? And we're doing uh, we're dead holding dead man. dudes can't talk. We're all the I just realized I'm like, where do we go from here? We're dead now. <laughs> Look, that was a that was a dramatic reinterpretation of the plague that we will be covering today. That's right. We're talking about why the last man, everyone's screaming about it. No one can get enough of it. Actually, I don't even know if that's true. I hope people are watching the show. I'm enjoying the TV show. It's it seems expensive. It seems like they <laughs> I hope they're doing okay. I hope so, too. I, I just want to see the story continue. Well, we'll talk about the TV show later. I just want to see how they advance the uh, realm of CGI capuchin monkey acting. Because, oh, holy so shit, that good. is insane in the show, too. That monkey's great, dude. Way better than Friends. Uh, yes, today we're talking about the comic book and television series now. It has been adapted to a uh, FX series on Hulu. Uh, which is fantastic, uh, or at least it's good. I'm enjoying it. I think it's a solid first uh, t- series. I've got more thoughts on that later. Mm-hmm. But uh, regardless, we're talking about it. It is a great, you know, for me personally, let's just get right into the gush. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I've got a big, ooh, juicy gusher. No way. It's such a weird thing where it's like ubiquitous and yet it's not at the same time. Let's let, 
Like, break it down. Give me, give me the definition. Give me the why the last man is a comic book series which was adapted into a television series. The story revolves around a single event that simultaneously killed every mammal with a Y chromosome, except for one man named Yurik and his pet monkey Ampersand, who go on a quest to save the population of the planet. The comic was co-created by writer Brian K. Vaughn. You may remember him from our saga episode. He would go on to break that. Fantastic comic series and penciler Pia Guerra. It was published by Vertigo from 2002 to 2008. Yes. And uh, yeah, this is a comic that Marcus always championed. That a ton of people. That was it. Was like if you were getting back into comics like me after college, you know, mm-hmm. or during college or whatever, and you're starting to read like not just superhero fare, mm-hmm. you know, why the last man's, I think one of the first things, especially back in the day that someone would recommend, right? It's like Watchmen, you know, Sandman, why the last man, everything has a man in it. Huh? Jake, what's going it's on with part that? Of, it's part of what I call the two thousands, uh, rise of the Bryans, where <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, we like, there was a lull after the, um, what do you call it? The, the speculation boom where comics were selling millions of copies based on just, Foil covers and number ones, you know, this was the this was the era of McFarlane and Liefeld and um, the kind of simmering indie comic scene kindly finally got to like rise of their own. And so we had, I, like I said, the rise of the Bryans. We had Brian Michael Bendis, Brian Wood, Brian Azzarello and uh, Brian K. Vaughn all kind of emerging with these like kind of more, I don't want to say grounded, but these more naturalistic uh, stories, these more relatable stories, the kind of comics that you can hand off to someone who like had a memory of the 90s and is like, well, I don't like superhero stuff. And you can hand them this, uh, you know, something like 100 Bullets yeah. or uh, DMZ or Why the Last Man. And they could say like, oh, wow, this is really good. Uh, kind of we a spiritual successor to Sandman in terms of the, Vertigo book you can hand your girlfriend Uh or leave with your partner after a breakup who then hands it to someone else. (laughs) Yeah, and it's definitely one that escaped me for a really long time. I'm not really sure why. Maybe just for some reason, I don't know, the... The premise never fully uh, grabbed me back in the day or to, enough to get started, or I just never really had access mm-hmm. to the comics themselves. This might be the other reason. But uh, I don't know why, because since uh, Zibebe came into my life, uh, I had a lot of extra time, and I was starting to lose my mind a little bit. And I think I realized, like, oh, all I'm doing is watching shit. I need to start, like, reading again. Oh, I have this tablet and this comic book fucking subscription membership. Maybe I should just read a buttload of comics instead of just staring at the TV all day. It's just a different way to engage with media while taking care of this little girl. And, you know, at the same time, I'm walking down my street in L.A., uh, you know, skip, skip, hop into the weed store. And uh, I there's these posters really cool to me, eye catching. I really like the red and black, um, uh, you know, advertisements for Why the Last Man. And I was like, oh, yeah, I never read that. Comixology, the first, uh, that's how they get you. The first mm-hmm. couple trades are free, but then they dangle that in front of you, and I blasted through those. And then all of a sudden, I bought all the omnibuses or whatever and and uh, and uh, blasted through the whole series really quickly. It is a very readable series. It's a very page-churny series, you know? And in a lot of ways, they had to... It's very comic booky in ways that I think they had to try to step away from a little bit in the, in the TV show in order to like properly 
get across like what it would be like if this really happened, which it would be fucking crazy. I mean, billions of lives mm-hmm. done in the blink of an eye. And we'll talk more about because I think a lot of the fun of it is the thought experiment of what would happen, you know, mm-hmm. what would happen in, you know, at, you know, different sectors of labor, what would happen in just infrastructure with, you know, in terms of gender disparity in the workplace, what would happen in, you know, in the White House, what would happen, you know, uh, just in terms of the cleanup effort, the, the you know, what, how would towns move on, you know, and with all this dead everywhere, you know, not even just men or rather people with a white chromosome, uh, but also, you know, uh, not just humans, but but uh, animals as well. It'd be a shit show. It'd be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it is a really enjoyable, uh, not enjoyable, but it's a really interesting thought experiment on its own. And then you add this like level of, at least in the comic books, like levity and humor and kind of, there's almost like a, dare I say, wackiness mm-hmm. in the <laughs> tone of the uh, comic book, which I think kind of makes it more palatable and makes it stand out a little bit in terms of, you know, especially comic book fair, especially comic book fair coming out in the early 2000s, you know, which I think was per- a lot of it was still kind of in that dark, brooding kind of space. Oh. And so it stands out in a lot of ways, you know, because also in a lot, in some ways you're like, oh, this is almost like a zombie Mm -hmm. thing, but it's not. But it feels like, even in the TV show, that first episode feels very Walking Dead, you know, with all the cars and stopped Mm -hmm. in the city streets and everything kind of just falling apart uh, out out of the blue, you know, had had a very similar vibe to that first episode of Walking Dead in in a lot of ways. But uh, anyways, I just, you know, I don't, I I don't agree with everything in the comic book, I guess, or don't love everything in the comic, but man, did I read that shit in a matter of a few days, like in a week or something, like the whole series. And I, that's a testament to its uh, writing and flow. And man, I just couldn't put it down. I just super, super loved reading. So uh, I read this while it was happening. I just graduated from college. I was uh, working some nonprofit job in the DC area. And there was this great little comic book shop in my neighborhood in my first apartment. And um, I, you know, it was, I was reading a lot of comic book blogs, listening to a lot of proto podcasts. Shout out to uh, iFanboy. iFanboy, iFanboy. What's up? Just to give you a, a, a hint, a hint of like the kind of era of the internet this was. <laughs> and uh, Why the Last Man got a lot of press, a lot of respect, a lot of hype. Uh, as each new issue came out, not just press and respect, but taught in schools, mm-hmm. you know, like held in, held up even academically in these in these certain ways that other comic books at the time were not. Um, and uh, I definitely resonated with it. Uh, specifically, the character of Yorick is this twenty two year old pop culture obsessed kind of like uh, nerd, this quirky nerd that you know, everything out of his mouth. Like, yeah. if you're reading the comic, everything out of his mouth is just 2000s pop culture references. Like, there's m- corpses littering the streets. There's a gun pointed at him. Uh, there's a roving band of, like, cannibal biker women, whatever he's coming up against. And, like, you know, he'll just be like, man, things haven't been this hairy since uh, Chewbacca fucking Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> like, it's really, <laughs> like, insane. He just speaks in references. Yeah, he's the, it's the. So many. It's the like, Space Jam 2 of character, of, of comic book protagonists. Uh, you know, uh, something like, oh, you read Kurt Vonnegut? Marry me. <laughs> it's a very, like, Whedon-esque 
protagonist and uh, Brian K. Vaughn in a recent uh, panel that I watched uh, talked about how when he wrote the first issue, he based it pretty much on himself. He based it on uh, a lot of his friends. He based it on his intended audience, which was, you know, male comic book fans around his age. And he wrote him to be like likable and charming. Yeah. And one of the first notes that his editor gave him was like, man, it's so refreshing to read a comic book where the uh, where the protagonist is kind of just a just a, a dick. Yeah. And he was like, uh-oh. <laughs> just annoying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's kind of what I, how I felt too about it, reading it recently, you know? It's funny, like, I've, I've, I've done a few rereads of the book. Um, and, you know, when I was reading it issue by issue as it was coming out, I was always like, ha-ha, Yorick's kind of hilarious. And then rereading the second time, it was more like, man, Yorick's kind of a dick. And now rereading it again in 2021, I'm now the feeling is, ha ha, Yorick's kind of a dick. <laughs> like, it's hilarious. Oh, wow. Is this is this the modern day uh, Holden Caulfield, Yorick? Yeah, in a way, in a weird way. <laughs> Obviously, he needs room to grow. He needs room to exist. And he does, he does have a bit of an arc in terms of that maturity a little bit. But yeah, I definitely think, and in the... And what's fun is in the TV show, they definitely took the note that he's an annoying kind of shithead young guy, but they just updated the version of it for modern day standards. Like now, instead of being like what you just described, he's like, uh, can't afford rent, <clears throat> relies on his parents forever, like on his mom for everything, like just sucks at like proposing to his uh at the time girlfriend you know in this in these very millennial ways right or these very like gen z ways um and that that is kind of fun that they they were like all right we need to just make them today annoying (laughs) so another so one of the things that i feel like really makes the comic pop is pia guerra's artwork because she has um this amazing sense of performance if you go through every single uh, panel every single page like the expressions are super specific and unique the characters are really selling the dialogue in a way that is very difficult or kind of hard to master in a lot of like more bombastic comic books yeah you know if you just have two-fisted tales of vengeance everything's either like a smirk or a grimace like there's very little subtlety whereas uh People's reactions, people's implorations, people's like emo- like the emotions are all there on the page. Yeah, it's great. It's great acting. It's yeah. great illustrative acting that that she is able to pull off for sure. And much like Saga, and if you haven't uh, heard that episode, he again, it's just him and this artist team. They're very collaborative over even the you know the writing aspects of it as well, not just the art. And uh, it is o- he only had her do the art through the whole run. And if they needed to take their time with it. There's a couple of fill-in artists. But even then, they did it. Like, if you're not looking for it, you honestly would not know when yeah. the fill-in artists came in. For the most part, it was Pia. And it was this two-person team. And again, how that makes for such a much tighter uh, enjoyable viewing experience and reading experience, I think, is uh, you know really a big secret to Brian's success. Another thing that he does incredibly well is every page, like without you know, obviously there's exceptions. Sometimes he goes for a two-page like setup punchline, but every issue ends on a big reveal or a cliffhanger. Yeah, every page ends on a joke or a like 
uh, revelation or something to keep you turning. There's a structural, uh, I don't want to say what's, the, I guess, discipline that I, I think when we get into that he was part of the Stanhattan Project, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's taking all these pulp era comic book writing yeah. uh, tricks and adapting them to a more modern, sophisticated reader. Um, and the end result is with the page turny kind of uh, uh, writing style where everything is structured to with the idea that you're holding someone is holding this in their hands. Uh, the great acting uh, on the page for by uh, through Guerra's art. Uh, you have what is a high concept, big bu- budget TV show, one that has the benefit of an unlimited budget for effects and action sequences and set pieces, and with the creative uh, uh, consistency of having a single writer creator duo guiding it throughout its entire process, which you know. Anybody can tell you and like, how many big TV shows have like had stinker episodes or ended on a whiff or just didn't know what they were doing or, you know, flailed at the last minute because it's such a compromised product. Um, you get this just wholly great narrative experience, even for people that don't aren't down with comic books or aren't quite in tune with all the thousands of characters and billions of tropes that is needed for comic book literacy if you pick up, say, a modern Marvel book. Um, there's a reason why you can hand this off to anybody and they'll enjoy it because it really is a it's, – it's the fact that it took so long to be adapted into a TV series is almost uh, – it's truly remarkable because it's all there on the page. And uh, eventually TV kind of caught up to Why the Last Man because, you know, this came out before really Lost kicked into high gear, before – uh, Breaking Bad, before all these kind of prestige shows made their way in the world. And it's kind of, I feel like it's a lot of people that picked up Why the Last Man and Ex Machina and all the other big Brian comics that flooded the market in the 2000s paved the way for prestige TV. Yeah, for Was sure. Was I supposed to make I, I, a joke? Uh, shit, shit, shit. Uh, uh, we're a comedy. I'm Dr. Nutters and <laughs> oh, I've got notes. big nuts on my elbows. <laughs> On my elbows, Jake. You have to yes and this bit. You have to say, ask me. Don't ask me a question. Give me an affirmation. Yes, Doctor Nutters. It's yeah. They're so dangly. I can't believe it. I just. I thank you so much for joining us on this program. How did you feel about the uh, the the comic book? My wife's dead. <laughs> she died. She died. Get out of here, Professor Doctor Nutters. Doctor Nutters is kind of a downer. Dead wife. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> just want to hear about the nuts on your elbows or your thoughts on Wild Last Man. Holding. Uh, well done. You clinched it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will also say that. Oh God. I hope someone's listening. This is the first episode they decided to listen to. By That's, the way, this is a pretty accurate uh, representation. I'd say. I guess it kind of works. Uh, <laughs> I will also. I would like to say this uh, before we get into the the meat of this episode and the whole history of this uh, great series. Um, it's a road trip movie or, mm-hmm. or a road trip story rather. And it's an odyssey. And I love that kind of storytelling. I love when they've got to get from point A to point B and all the people they meet along the way. And, you know, they do a great job of that. And we end up, you know, really traveling the world, which ends up being a lot of fun as the story goes on. So I just, you know, the, the the opening kind of first big arc of the whole thing is that they have to get from like Washington, D.C. to 
the West Coast, mm -hmm. right, uh, to get to this lab. So I, I just love that kind of uh, setting for for a story. And uh, they they do a great job of taking us to all these great locations and meeting all these characters, and then and then reuniting with some of them, uh, you know, later on. And yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. But anywho, let's get into it. I will say, uh, definitely talked about Brian K. Vaughn's little backstory on the Saga episode. I did find a couple of extra nuggets though, so hopefully this won't be such a rehash, mm -hmm. and uh, we won't spend too much time on it because again the saga episode uh but i will just say brian k vaughn born and raised in ohio he and his brother both had a big interest in comics from an early age vaughn said when i was a little kid probably in kindergarten i was homesick from school and my parents brought home a bunch of comics for me to read i would get comics and i thought that the panels were like an activity book that you were supposed to cut out <laughs> like you did with some other magazines and arrange the pictures in order for it to make sense Almost as soon as I was exposed to comic books, I wanted to start hacking them and cutting them open and stitching it all back together again. There are pictures of me as a little kid chopping up, I'm sure, what today would be hugely valuable copies of The Amazing Spider-Man and pasting them with uh, Heathcliff or other Sunday newspaper comics. I just thought all comics were meant to be mashed together. That was your job as the reader, which I love that anecdote of him like immediately just creating his own work out of what's come before. That explains Saga so so well. <laughs> yeah, right? I agree. I, that's really cool. I, I love finding that quote. Um, you know, you go back, you find some new stuff. It's nice to rehash sometimes. After high school, Vaughn studied film at the New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. And during that time, uh, Jake already mentioned he was a part of the Stan Hatton Project Writers Workshop. Jake, can you fill us in on what this kind of was about? Uh, it was just a uh, someone at Marvel, uh, one of the editors, was teaching a class and uh, uh, what was it? He like uh, someone at Marvel had a connection to NYU. And uh, when they were kind of hitting a shortage of writers that were like that understood the medium of comics, he was coming up short. And so as an attempt to like get some new talent going, he offered this workshop um, called the Stanhattan Project for Stanley and Manhattan, which is where the Tisch School is. Um, and uh, there... Uh, you know, it's uh, famously Brian K. Vaughn was there and it's, uh, you know, it was an attempt to like get these, you know, film guys and playwright guys and all these people that had an understanding of character and had an understanding of narrative and all these things to like learn the tricks of the trade of comic books. And hopefully that pay, you know, that tutelage would pay off for Marvel. Um, and, you know, Brian K. Vaughn had a great run on The Runaways uh, what? Uh, not Brian Wood. Uh, Joe. Who's the other guy? There is another guy from the Stanhattan Project who made good. Uh, oh, I'm gonna. I believe it was John Hatton. No, no, that's that not, was the that whole can't... reason why it was called the Stanhattan Project. It was his name is John Hatton Project. That, I believe that's his won't name. Be the Stanhattan Project <laughs> joint venture. Whatever. I can open Wikipedia on live on. Alive. Totally, dude, and definitely Joe your Kelly. It was Joe Kelly. Very accurate. Ah, who uh, had a great run on names. Deadpool, great run on Uncanny X Men, like, and uh, eventually uh, helped create the Ben Ten series. Whatever, it's fine. Cool, Ben Ten. But uh, that was that was the that was the impetus. That's what got 
Brian K. Vaughn in the front door and got, you know, let him get his early start in yes. uh, writing comics. Yes, he did an issue called Tales from the Age of Apocalypse Number 2 for Marvel. That was his first story for them in the mid-90s. Uh, he was also doing stuff for DC, Batman stuff, Green Lantern, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He was actually heavily inspired, I believe, by Joss Whedon. Uh, for um, That was for Dark Horse Comics. Then he decides he's ready to create his own thing, which is really soon and very, like... Um, uh, what's the word? God, why can't I think of the words? I haven't had any edibles today, Jake. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. <laughs> he was very, uh, but it's just a very ballsy move, I feel like, that that young in the industry. Uh, cut to Pia Guerra. Born in Hoboken, New Jersey, she had been, in, quote, into drawing since I was four years old. She was introduced to comics at the age of 10. She had this cool cousin who was super cool and would always come and visit from Queens. And it was the kind of thing where this cousin left the uh, an issue of the Uncanny X-Men, issue number 129, on her parents' coffee table. And she was like, well, cool, my cool-ass cousin reads this shit, so I bet this is super cool. And was immediately hooked to uh, the form ever since. She very much so was self-taught as an artist and was originally planning on going into medicine, among other things. Guerra said, As time went on, I was practicing a lot and drawing for friends, and people told me I had some talent. I started taking art to conventions, and people said I could make a living at this. I, I wasn't too sure I would take this beyond a hobby because living li the life of an artist was a little scary, and I didn't really want to do this. It Took a little while to convince myself, but then I decided to get into it. She did not go to college. Instead, she started working initially on video games and voiceover, as well as game manuals, doing like illustrations for that, and then also corporate storyboards for stuff like Microsoft Studios, very much just in the grind at that point in her career. And her first thing is going to be Why the Last Man. She gets involved with Vertigo Comics. The, that is, of course, the imprint of DC Comics, started by Karen Berger in 1993 that Why would run on. Guerra said, After a few years of talking to editors and having Karen saying no, I finally met Heidi McDonald, who really liked my work and wondered why I didn't have work. So she made me her special project, working her butt off to get me a project. A few years after uh, saying that, she finally convinced Karen that I could handle a book and there were a few rejections along the way where I was sending in samples for various books. I was really excited, and then I'd get a big no, like with Names of Magic, for example. After NOM, I felt like giving up on Vertigo because I'd been it had been six years, and I tried to get in on Shade through Shelley Bond. Finally, Heidi called me up and asked me if I minded drawing a lot of women. So I figured I would try drawing it, even though it'd probably be another no from the powers that be. But I did get it, and here I am. Am on why, which is I love that quote. Just in terms of anybody starting out in an in industry, if not uh, comic book art, then anything like it. That I, I mean, she she grinded it out for six years, getting rejected over and over again. She didn't just like fall ass backwards into why the last man. I mean, this was such a grind. Even though what a lucky first gig. Yeah. At the end of the day, like man, I mean, how rare is that that you just get this explosively popular, fresh IP gig you know but it took a long time and a lot of rejection to get there in the uh, trade paperback you can find some of uh guerra's early sketches for why the last man uh, a few of the noteworthy things i noticed was that um agent 355 who is a i would say basically the deuteragonist of the comic uh she's a 
elite secret agent who, uh, you know, is classified beyond classified, who serves directly under the orders of the president, who is tasked with protecting and escorting uh, Yorick across the nation and ensuring his safety. Um, she's in the comic is a black woman. Uh, in the initial sketch, she is a very generic white lady with blonde hair, mm. almost indistinguishable from Beth, mm. which I think maybe would have been like part of the early, like, will they, won't they tension is like, oh, she looks like his uh, fiance, Beth, York's fiance. Uh, we see in the first issue in a bikini top uh, climbing around rocks in the Australian Outback. Uh, she was very quickly developed into the character as we know her. Uh, and the early versions of uh, Yorick, I swear to God, just look like he was like bald. He had like this very distinctive face. He looks like Brian K. Vaughn. He just looked like Brian K. Vaughn. Um, the design was then like made less distinctive and even more simplified. And Guerra talks about how uh, she really wanted uh, Yorick to be kind of this like blank slate white guy that the statistically most likely audience would be able to project onto and kind of just imprint themselves on, which is an old comics trick. If you yeah. want your uh, character to be likable and you want uh, readers to really feel for them and like go through what they're going through, you make them as simple as possible, like to just let the reader fill in their own details and their own lives onto that character. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. So Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra, they have some emails. This turns into a phone call, then a meeting in San Diego, and they decided to work together. They have this immediate rapport. Quote, we just work well together. We have similar interests. We're visualizing the same movie and the same idea on where the story should go. So immediately they're collaborating on a higher level than just like, here's the script. Give me what you got. Like they're definitely, you know, Pia is in there working on character, working on story beats with Brian K. Vaughn. I think that super collaborative effort is what helps keep Brian K. Vaughn in, in a decent lane. You know what I mean? It, it helps uh, the whole thing, as you said, stay very concise and very uh, consistent. So Guerra is even listed as co-creator of the series, uh, even though it was, of course, Brian K. Vaughn's idea to start with. Um, Guerra said, I design stuff and give a lot of feedback, occasionally suggesting things that may or may not be used, whether it be details to the character or whether it's actual characters. I've suggested little things that add to a character's presence on the page, and there was one time I suggested a really good idea for a nemesis for Yorick later on, and Brian thought it was great. So we've got a whole story arc devoted to that now. Uh, not just any nemesis. I, they ta I, Again, on the same panel I mentioned before, uh, it's the uh, Culper ring. That's the secret agent ring that uh, 355 is a member of. 
the I forget which number does it, but uh, there's uh-huh. a very intense plot line, uh-huh. a three issue arc where uh, Yorick is kind of broken down and kind of ritualistically subjected to this whole SNM torture sequence. And that was Pia Guerra's suggestion because she was like, what would the natural enemy of an escape artist be? Uh, it would be an SNM bondage mistress, like someone who's if his whole deal is he can escape anything because um, that's part of his character. He is an escape artist. That's why he's always shown in a straight jacket or doing some like fancy very, magic stuff. Very convenient uh, hobby for your protagonist. It's a fun gift your... from a narrative perspective. <laughs> that is a very because if he's not going to be the twin fisted uh, man of action, if the whole point is that he's not very proactive at the very least, he can be squirrely. He can be exceptionally wriggly. Um, but yeah, it was Pia Guerra that was like, wouldn't it be kind of brilliant that uh, a bondage mistress was the one who like locks him down and makes him confront stuff? And so another amazing showcase for Guerra's art because, you know, Yorick has flashbacks. Uh, we learn a lot about his uh, kind of traumatic childhood. We learn about his family. There's all this dream imagery that comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, dreams have a big part of the story and Guerra nails these fanciful kind of psychotropic images uh, in a way that really like shocks the viewers, especially when you're used to this kind of grounded dystopia for a majority of the comics. I also appreciate though that like they never, at least not that I remember do the dumb thing where you think it's real and then it turns out to be a dream. The dream sequence is generally like immediately you can tell they're a dream and there's no bait and switch there, which I appreciate. Another story thing that I really appreciate when it comes to that arc is essentially like it starts off, York is just doing all these like really insane ballsy things like, you know, with a gun pointed at him and this and that and in a very comic booky way. And then they actually give that motivation. He realizes like, oh, I'm like trying to kill myself. Yeah. Like I'm not in a good place mentally, and that's why I keep doing this stuff. I am not acting like the last genetic hope for the human race should act. Yeah, and then gives motivation for that, and then he kind of get, get goes and gets his head straight. But I just thought that was a really smart way to t- place to take the story, especially because you do have these things that are like, this feels like, would he? why would he do this? Like, why would he put himself in this situation at this point when he knows what's at stake? Uh, but anyways, going back to Guerra, uh, it's a great rapport we've got because I'm free to suggest big ideas or just little ideas to enhance the story. Brian's really open to that, which is unusual. Uh, and of course, you're you know very similar quotes we got from the artist of Saga, right? Very very similar in talking about the collaborative effort. I just think that you know, come on, it, it makes for such a successful situation. Like other people really should be probably trying to do this as well with comics. Um, Brian's really open to that, which is unusual. There have been times when I've worked with a writer where they've had preset ideas on how the story and plot should both be with no interest in hearing from the artist. But in this collaboration, Brian wants to hear from me. It's so great. Hey, guys, it's me, Professor Nutters. Uh, I'm feeling better now. Oh, that's good to hear, Professor Nutters. You kind of had a little bit of a breakdown, and so we were worried about you. I'm glad. Sorry for tanking the... The vibe of the show. I didn't mean to do it. Uh, That's okay. I got nuts on my elbows. Okay. You guys want some sandwiches? Oh my God. No, I think I'm. You want yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. I would He's love got a ham sandwich. and cheese. I, I assume it's. Yeah, I got ham and cheese. I've got. I've got butter and mashed potatoes. That's, I've got. That's weird. In a sandwich. Yeah, it's a good sandwich. <laughs> All right, oh. well, see you okay, later. Okay, bye, Mr. Nutters. I'm, I'm happy for him. You know what? It feels like he's, he's, you know, he's got his head right. <laughs> 
My joy is alive! <laughs> oh no! Oh, oh my no, god, Mr. Nutters! My joy is alive. I don't know what's going on with that guy. Anywho, sorry to bring it down with the f- colorful character, guys. <laughs> I uh, didn't realize what that would do to the show. Let's talk about coming up with the concept a little bit more, shall mm-hmm. we? Brian K. Vaughn said, I don't know exactly where the idea came from. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school growing up. Our sister school, which was all girls, sometimes needed actors for their school plays. I would go over there just as a cheap excuse to meet girls. I'm sure walking through the hallways and being the only man in that strange world planted the seed somehow. He also said, I've always been interested in gender relations and questions of gender, and comic books seem like a good place to explore those issues. The idea just came into my head pretty easily. And another thing we can attribute to the basic setup of the comic, he was going through a really bad breakup at the time. And, of course, we start the comic and the TV show with Yorick wanting to propose to his longtime girlfriend, and then that all being sort of ripped apart by this whole, you know, Y chromosome plague. Uh, and so a lot of the comics, him trying to reunite with this uh, with this woman, Beth, that is on the other side of the uh, planet, at least in the comic book, they changed that up a little bit for the TV show. I mean, he talks about also how the, you know, it's a common, like, turn of phrase, not even if you were the last man on Earth. And, I mean, I don't want to, like, reveal, yeah, I don't want to put too much on the table in in on the podcast you know i feel like i keep a good emotional distance between you the listener and me but any dude that like lacks confidence and lacks experience and lacks confidence uh will kind of uh will will have that thought or is like well you know if there was no other game in town uh this lady would love me you know it, this would be easier if you know i was the, if if i was the last man on earth uh, it's a very juvenile thing to be like, uh, my babysitter would would think I'm cool if there wasn't any other cool older boys, whatever it is. And he talks about, you know, asking his male friends like, hey, have you ever had this weird thing? And they were like all the time. And he was like, what is wrong with us? That is a horrifying scenario that like a common flight of fancy is like, man, I wish billions died in an instant. Yeah. <laughs> and so the idea of actually Right of doing a comic that actually played out that scenario in horrifi- in all of its horrifying detail uh, is very compelling, and it doesn't hurt that you know the the stereotype about the average comic book fan. Uh, I'll just say the escapist media enjoyer mm. uh, might lead itself to an audience that also has entertained those uh, those ideas as well. For sure, for sure. So, yes, Brian K. Vaughn did a ton of research in order to take on the story. He said, I probably spent a year of my life researching all this stuff. It's not entirely because I like to be thorough in my preparations. It's mostly because I love to procrastinate. As a writer, research sort of feels like work. It's not real work because it's a lot more fun than writing, which is usually tedious and lonely. He would, like, go to the library. He would go to these more public spaces to do all this research. And I just find that funny because of what we do. And it does kind of feel similar to what he just said. Uh, Guerra had this to say, too, on... Just Brian K. Vaughn writing this very woman-centric story, woman-focused, you know, uh, uh, story in terms of the many characters in it. Guerra said, it's irrelevant. Uh, I don't think that gender has a lot to do with this. Brian's good at writing women and men. I'm good at drawing both, and we don't think in those terms. I don't constantly question him about whether or not a woman would think in the way he writes. He's already got the fundamentals of writing people down, and I'm able to draw people. So I think that's the good thing about our working relationship. And I think that also opens, before we move into how they got the comic off the ground, Let's we're definitely opening an interesting door here. 
especially with the TV show coming out very, very recently. Like mm-hmm. literally, it started coming out a, a couple, like a month or so ago. You know, in 2002, the conversations around gender very different from the conversations we're having now in 2021. And we'll talk about how the show adapts uh, the comic in a certain way to bring it up to date. Then uh, the biggest way is by adding that uh, a tran- a main character as is a trans uh, man, mm-hmm. and uh, how you know, and, and really exploring how you know. Again, it was everybody with a Y chromosome, and so even though it's very vaguely mentioned offhand in the comic book that there are trans people in this world, um, you know. In the show, they definitely get a lot more, and I have a bunch of quotes and stuff on how they explore that, but they get a lot more in, oh, it was everyone with a Y chromosome. So trans women. Intersex women. Intersex. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like, hey, we, we, we opened up the complexity to address, you know, it seems like a ballsy time to put this show out. I will say, I will say, just as an example, like, even though Brian K. Vaughn does acknowledge uh, in the book that like, yes, this would have been this. There's some weird stuff happening uh, with trans w- uh, women right now. Uh, they'd spend more on pay on paper uh, exploration of Japanese women building man robots. Yeah. <laughs> the experiences <laughs> of trans women is, in like the world. I mean, it's cool that it's even mentioned at all for 2002 standards or whatever. For two, but- that, again, it's the, the, I feel like uh, half of my journey on this podcast is like real is going like, no, in 2002, I acknowledged trans people existed. Therefore, yeah. I'm pretty progressive. <laughs> like, and the you know, I mean, in sync was really popular then. You know, it was a very different, very time different than time. it is today. So, from the jump, Vaughn had a very detailed pitch for a 60 issue series that spanned York's five year journey as the last man on Earth, which I love to hear. It had the whole thing pretty much nailed down. Vaughn said. I'd say that the first three years or so were planned out in very specific detail. After that, it was more the broad strokes involving where the characters were going to end up, both geographically and emotionally. I've always known what the last line of the book was going to be and what the last panel would be. That's always been true. But Vertigo was still definitely skeptical. Vaughn said, At the time, I had done some work for Vertigo, but that mostly involved getting Swamp Thing canceled after 20 issues. No one really knew my name, and no one had heard of Pia Guerra either. It was kind of a weird concept to begin with, a man and his monkey being chased down by one-breasted women on motorcycles. It could have been terrible. Uh, By the way, Vaughn is referring to a Swamp Thing run from back in 2000. (laughs) It was canceled after 20 issues, as he mentioned, possibly because the story seemed to really just focus on uh, Swamp Thing's daughter, Mm -hmm. and the monster was largely absent from the story, even though it was called Swamp Thing. It just seemed to kind of bore readers a little bit. Like, it was definitely an interesting, different take, but just, it wasn't quite, you know, he wasn't just quite at the level he needed to be at, which uh, he got there with Why the Last Man. Uh, He had to convince DC, actually, to not uh, have him first do a six-issue miniseries as a test. He had to really put his foot down and be like, no, I have this concept. I think it's going to be great, you know, and it's got to be the whole thing or nothing, which is kind of amazing. So he wrote the first issue in September of 2001. This is just before 9-11, which is really fascinating because of this quote right here. Vaughn said, There were some parts of the comic that took place in Afghanistan and featured a then-obscure group called the Taliban. 
It sort of detailed all the terrible things the Taliban were doing to women. It seemed after 9-11 that Afghanistan would have much bigger problems to worry about than the Taliban. I decided to adjust the aspect. How crazy is that timing? Also, he says, 9-11 had a great impact on the future of the series. Mm -hmm. It made me rethink the way people deal with tragedy. Living in New York after 9-11, you realized it wasn't all just wailing and gnashing of teeth. A lot of New Yorkers survived that experience using humor. That definitely had a big impact on why. The idea that when you're faced with insurmountable tragedy, the only thing you can do is laugh in the face of it. And uh, yeah, I, I remember even that first SNL back, it was kind of emotional, you know? And at the very beginning, um, our oh, much beloved Mayor Rudy Giuliani Famously at the time. normal guy, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> uh, but back then, he was a, at least a little more normal seeming. I believe it was him on stage with Lauren Michaels. Literally, Lauren, Lauren Michaels him. is like, is it okay to make jokes again? <laughs> yeah, can we laugh? I believe he says, can we laugh No, 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 the, I remember the line. It's uh, Lauren Michaels asks uh, Rudy Giuliani, can we be funny again? <laughs> and Rudy Giuliani goes, why start now? <laughs> Which is a great little dig. Yeah, it was. And, and it was kind of, you know, it seems a little corny now, but it was actually like a really emotional moment uh, for me. And, you know, because, yeah, it was humor like can save us sometimes. And... So that's what I love about the tone of the comic. And also it just balances it. I mean, it's too... And you'll see in those... That's why, like, with the TV show, I kind of want to suggest to people, it, it feels like one of those shows where if it's not immediately grabbing you, give it a few episodes because I feel like in the show, they decided they needed to show how intense this would be. And they kind of show the plague, like, going down, yeah. which they sort of do in the comic, but they kind of um, really drive to get you to well after it went down enough that people are starting to like try to rebuild, try to figure this out, and we're not just doom and gloom. No, you the, know, uh, the uh, build uh, in the time. show to the... I always... I, in, since I started uh, doing research and shotgunning the show and shotgunning the comics all at once, like, I, I don't even refer to it as the plague. I just call it the blorp because <laughs> it's just every man on earth just starts like coughing up blood out of every orifice and like just goes... Yeah. And dies. Yeah, <laughs> the blark. Yeah. Uh, or like, I, I know this isn't how they address it, but I just, you know, I just imagine a bunch of women around a campfire, like uh, seeking shelter for the night, just being like, yeah, I was outside manning the garden when my husband got blorped. <laughs> like, <it's> just, <laughs> but the comic, like, I definitely had the thought, like, man, like, everyone is way too snarky. They're like, there's way too many zingers flying around for such a serious, like, event. But, you know, learning how, you know, uh, give it, being given the context that Brian K. Vaughn provided, I believe it more now. I yeah. do actually think like, yeah, you know what? If shit went down, I also would be making a lot of weird sarcastic jokes. That is, in fact, how I would go. Yeah, just, you know, I mean, hey, when we, you know, have lost important people in our lives, I've now found that if it's comedians, at least, I mean, there's a lot of laughs yeah. that happen in the grieving process, you know? Um, so yeah, uh, uh, real quick too, I know we already talked about York. I just wanted to add that, uh, Brian K. Vaughn also, uh, was an amateur magician and straitjacket escape artist, uh, back in the day. And he also lived in a crappy Brooklyn apartment in his early twenties. So yes, definitely he's, he's in there. Uh, as for ampersand, Vaughn decided as in a lot of post-apocalyptic fare, 
you need that animal sidekick, you know? Especially because it's really more of um, a mechanical device in the sense of, you know, he needs, if he's going to, you know, there are long portions where he might be alone, hiding away somewhere, this, that, and the other, and he just needs something to talk to so that he's not just talking to himself. So a lot of times that pet is what but of course Amberson becomes this way bigger part of the story as uh, as the, as it goes on and what's funny is he said uh, this is his quote about it dogs are overused and I hate cats so a monkey seemed like a slam dunk it's monkeys what's not to love about them uh, and of course you know we've we've definitely makes for great comic covers it feels like every memorable yeah. why the last man comic cover just has a photorealistic capuchin losing its shit yeah completely Another huge factor in the comic is the major advers- adversary for the main characters, um, Alter Ceylon. Did I say that right? I probably didn't. Uh, just just uh, act like you're ordering falafel while you pronounce the... Uh... Uh, can I get a... That's kind of what I do. <laughs> oh, I just, and then I just let them, I just let them give me whatever I, they think I said. Um, yeah, so Israel is a major, major factor in the comics because uh, they are... This character is a lieutenant general in the Israeli Defense Force. Therefore, the state of Israel uh, big, big, big faction, big part of things. Bond said, initially at least, it was less about Israel and more inspired by a friend who happened to be a woman serving in the Israeli Defense Force. I loved the idea of mandatory combat training that all women in one society had to go through. It seemed to make Israel so unique. So it was less about the Jewish faith or Zionism and more a desire to write about female soldiers. Israel seemed like the best place to focus on that. Comic book Jake, writers love Israel. Uh, Bill Willingham <laughs> yeah. famously went on a, a, a big pro-Israel thing in his comic. Um, the uh, what? What else? Who else did a dumb Israel thing? Uh, I mean, how do you feel like as, as a person of you know with a uh, it's, Jewish background? Uh, how do how do you feel well, about in the intervening years since the show has come out? There is far more women in combat roles in militaries across the world. So, uh, but it, uh, oh, uh, you know, World War Z also had a big like, no, no, no. If the shit went down, Israel has it covered. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting, especially cause, uh, Alter Tzelon, uh, you know, is nameless, you know, kind of in a way because of a, uh, Jewish superstition that if like, uh, a sibling dies, the next sibling, uh, isn't given a name technically in order to evade the angel of death, um, the you know, it doesn't really get into Israeli politics, and yeah, the, yeah. you know Brian K. Vaughn goes out of his way to say that Alter's kind of a loose cannon, and you know that she is not especially uh, you know she doesn't represent the thoughts and feelings of the Israeli government. But um, <laughs> nice sidestep, very smart sidestep. Well, you know, I mean, what was it as volatile of a subject as it is? Oh become? yeah, yeah, like, no, it was still she, it's especially it was back still then. huge, right? Yeah, huge. We deal see back her then, right? literally. Uh, you know, she's out uh, trying to quell a Palestinian protest when we first are introduced to the character. Um, like it's there's definitely this kind of uh, it's that you know they're rightfully kind of using her as this Terminator like mission driven ideologically driven kind of uh highly capable killer that uh would represent a reasonable threat a reasonable uh pernicious 
a threat to our characters. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, these days it could very well easily be a North Korean soldier or a Russian soldier or even in America, the amount of uh, women who have seen combat has grown exponentially, especially after 9-11 and in the war on terror. Um, But at the time, uh, comic book writers definitely are like, hey, what's what's the cool society with all the guns? It's Israel. Like, it's just... (laughs) <laughs> that's just the, that's just what happened. Now, I have a section up next about, you know, one of the biggest mysteries in the comic and, of course, also in the show is the cause of the plague. But the more I think about it, if people haven't read the comic yet, I, I don't know how much I want to get into this, Jake. Should we just address that it's... I don't even know if I want to address it's, what, it's how they like handle It's kind of like The Walking Dead, where the actual answer of what caused... What X caused Y. Get it? Um... Uh, really doesn't matter. It's the story of how people adapt, how things have changed, and how they move forward that is really more important. Really is more important, but it, but it is an element in the series, and we'll just say that they give a, they serve up a lot of potential reasons they give for what a it lot could of be. characters, a lot of individual uh, guilt over what happened. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. Maybe oh yeah, I think that's it, Jake. Yeah, good call. For sure. Because uh, Professor Nutter says, good point, Jake. I'm sorry. Can I get you a cup of Bye. tea, Mr. Nutter? Oh, my God. I, I no, worry about my him. my life is a lie. My life is, I, I'm just, I wish I, I was the last man. All right. His, his elbow testicles are so droopy. Did you notice? So gross. How did he They used to be so full and bouncy, and he's just, I just, I don't think he's taking care of himself. Did his wife die from throwing up to death? <laughs> like, from looking at those nuts? elbows anyways i can't even get into it but uh uh i will say not only was the tone the the of the dialogue and things of that nature kept light on purpose but guerra also handled the violence in a way that just allowed to soften a bit of the edge of how fucking crazy it would actually be to lose billions of lives all at once Guerra said, I generally like to not use gore as much as implication. There's a scene in issue two where we see decaying bodies, and I knew it was grim, and I was trying to balance the fun of the series with the seriousness. So I put a lot of it with shadow and did things with the body that would make you think. The body that they lugged into the truck, uh, which you can't see because of the word balloon, and that's my gaff, was dressed in a bathrobe. And the idea was to make the reader think about the guy who died in his bathroom, or maybe he died alone. That's where more of the real horror comes uh, in because when you start to think about how these people died, that's truly a lot scarier than anything I could ever draw and it's nice to let people fill in the blanks and I do think that's another thing that makes it more unique than just your standard zombie fare is that they all died pretty much at once so everybody was in the middle of shit like airplanes were downed you know people were yeah we're just in there taking a shit you know and so the world that they create in the comics and in the show is the world that they expl- the main characters explore really is very fascinating in that sense. They have to create these very lived-in spaces that were active at the time of just a complete full stop. And uh, I love that. Again, there's so much storytelling that can be done in the background because of that. And, you know, little details. The, uh, the kind of the world journey of the comic uh, also kind of lends itself to the speculative fiction of it all because... Everywhere they go is another opportunity to explore how a society would adapt to this. Whereas, like, you know, they are uh, something as simple as like, oh, well, uh, Australia was the only country that allowed women to serve on submarines. Uh huh. Means that, like, they are controlling the international waters now because they're the most navally superior. 
or like, oh, Japan would like society would kind of continue because they have a strong sense of communal like respect and like things would be a little bit more chill there. Or, uh, you know, uh, Beth's journey through uh, the outback and her experiences with the Aborigines women as like its own unique spin. Uh, so it all kind of, it you know, everywhere they go is another chance to kind of play speculative fiction. Yes. Well, how, I, this, how would this play out a little bit? I love the that part, the, the think tank part, like how would, you know, it's kind of like futurists mm-hmm. do all day, right? But this is, if this specific thing came down, I have a great quote from the showrunner, um, I believe it's what, Eliza mm-hmm. Clark. Uh, about this kind of thing, but for the TV show, bringing it a little more up to date, but it's still being fucked up in these imbalanced in these ways. She's she was just she was t- still shocked to see how much gender disparity there was in certain labor segments. She said. Basically, what I learned is that our entire economy runs on trucks. So if you're living in a city, you know when you go to a grocery store, that grocery store needs two deliveries a day to be stocked for the number of people who are shopping at it. And they don't have storage. I think 5% of truck drivers are women. So just think about that one aspect, much less um, how many pilots are uh, male versus female. Another really interesting thing, I think one of the early moments in the comic that really made me be like, oh, I'm reading this whole thing. I love this. Um, is at the White House when the um, congressman, the Republican congressman's wives show up with guns and demanding that they get they fill the seat of their uh, now deceased husbands as it is the, to, they believe it is their right mm-hmm. right to to and, you know and then the you know the president who's now a woman is like uh yeah that can't happen that's not how our government works it's not it's like, we're a republic not a like a monarchy and i know it's a little more balanced with the fucking marjorie taylor greens of of the uh, world now but even now, I mean, the the female to uh, male disparity mm. in the GOP versus the, uh, you know, the, de- the Democrats is still like there's is way more women in the in the Democrats. So if this were to happen again, it would we would immediately have like a, a blue White House, yeah. you know, well, it's, and uh, I, it's yeah. one of the more brilliant things. We'll, we're, I, we're, we're etching closer to the show's production, but yes, we're one about of the, to get into the more show. brilliant things that the show does that the comic kind of than the comic is uh, the idea of like in the comic, there is a uh, philosophical man hating cult called the Daughters of the Amazon. Yes, that was. Oh, by the way, he, he said a quote earlier. I had a quote earlier about one breasted women. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and that is the daughters of the Amazon. They they cut their uh, breast off because that was back in the day. That was said that the Amazons did that uh, for to shoot bow and arrows. And the idea is that this is a collective of former domestic abuse victims, people who uh, truly experienced like the worst of what a male dominated society is capable of. And they uh, agreed that the blorp was a good thing and that, you know, they should (laughs) like violently uh, erase all aspect, you know, down to like burning down all the sperm clinics. Like uh, and it's all based on this like kind of militant feminist like uh, college professor. You know, I I don't want to I don't use this term lightly, but in 2002, it was thrown around a lot. The idea that like, oh, who's going to be stirring up shit when all the men die? It's going to be those dang feminazis, <laughs> which again, the horrible word uh, thrown around all the time, a lot more casually in 2002. And uh, in the TV show, they're like, 
No, it's going to be like ex-police officers and ex-military and like survival moms and all, you know. Yeah. It's, that's not who's going to just start randomly shooting people for canned peaches. Uh, when the I also is. like too that in the show and in the comic they really address. I have a good quote on it too that I'll I'll get to later. But just that they they don't make it like they'd all get along and like everything would run better and and there wouldn't be any volatility happening or any power struggles or anything like that. You know, if women ruled the world, right? And instead, it's like no humans are fucked. Well, there's pockets of it though. There's uh there's the all women's little, prisons. Little that gets let uh-huh. that gets let out, and they actually have a nice sense of community and collaboration, and it's like really heartwarming yeah. <laughs> how they've held together. Totally, uh, in a way that like you don't imagine a male society a male being able to prison. Hold yeah, a bunch of male prisoners. Yeah, I could see it for sure. Well, before we get to the show, and all I'll uh, end on with the comic is, I think it, it's really solid all the way through. It definitely there are definitely aspects that don't hold up. There are words thrown around that people don't use anymore, let's say, and things of that nature and how they handle gender had to be updated, obviously, for the show. And we'll get into that in a second. Uh, But I think all told, it's really solid. And I really did enjoy, I think it had a very nice, solid final issue. And it really like stuck the landing. One of the best. Uh, Let's 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 honestly break it down, because uh, why the last man, the final issue uh, is maybe one of the best like send offs for a comic. It's. Really good. It it it, remi- well, like it reminds six me feet, of a series I'm saying finale. six feet under okay, level. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I, did, I was gonna leave it vague because I didn't want to give anything away. But yes, it did kind of remind me of, I, and that is my favorite uh, finale to a TV show ever. Yeah. Would be six feet under. It, it just yeah, it handles it really really good. It doesn't do the same thing, but it does uh, a really good job of just putting it all all the pieces together and really like giving you a fulfilling goodbye. And I love that it ends. And you know, for the TV show show's sake. What's cool about it is if they wanted to keep going, they totally could, mm-hmm. you know? But I do love that it ends in the comic, and it's just satisfying in that way. Uh, all right, before we get to the show, though, I will say, I think largely people wonder, how did it take this long? This comic is so popular. Like, Walking Dead and all those kinds of comic book adaptations were have been huge for, like, a while now. That's, like, they're pretty bog standard at this point. The MCU, everything. The MCU. Why did it take this comic so long to be adapted? And part of that was a canceled film. Uh, and this was uh, uh, New Line Cinema acquiring the filmed rights. And uh, they attached a screenwriter, Carl Ellsworth, and a director, DJ Caruso. DJ Caruso is known most for a film called Disturbia. Vaughn said, did, quote, take a stab at the script that everyone seemed to like, before that, uh, but then um, they did. He didn't really have much involvement since. Very, you know, kind of of its time, right? The comic book creator now way more involved usually in the, in, you know, whatever they're doing. But back then, it was like, I guess give us a script, but we're going to take your thing and we're going to make it into this other thing. Uh, Caruso then decided this would be three films uh, and wanted Shia LaBeouf uh. to play Yorick. And, Al- and Alicia Keys to play Agent 355. I'm so glad this never got made. And uh, New Line is like, it can't be a trilogy. We didn't sign up for a trilogy. They go back and forth. He finally backs off in the project. Then it gets into that standard limbo. I won't name all the names. It gets passed around. Other folks trying to get it off the ground. Finally, in 2014, Brian K. Vaughn stated, quote, it's my understanding that the rights to Why the Last Man will revert to co-creator Pia Guerra and me for the first time in a decade if the planned New Line adaptation doesn't start shooting in the next few months. And it didn't, so 
They did reacquire the rights. Now it's 2015. FX begins development on an, on a TV series based on the comic with Brian K. Vaughn. Still 2015, mm-hmm. six years ago. You know, uh, it's been it's it's taken a while. Uh, Brian Green, who wrote the screenplay for Logan, uh, wrote Michael a Green. pilot script. That, oh, is it Michael Green? Oh, that would make sense. I probably too, too many Brian's. Yeah. Uh, Michael Green, who wrote the Logan screenplay, wrote a pilot script that Brian K. Vaughn really liked, and for a good while he was set to co-show run the series alongside um, Aida Mashaka Kroll, who was the writer for Jessica Jones. Mm -hmm. After a lot of development work, though, through 2017 into 2019, several years passed, Kroll and Green finally exit, citing uh, creative differences. They are then replaced with our current, our now showrunner that actually does put the show out, Eliza Clark. I had a quote from her a little while ago. She had previously written on the AMC series Rubicon and produced the TNT series Animal Kingdom, but still not a ton of big credits to her name. She then writes the first two episodes. FX announces that the entire first season will be directed by all women. Uh, uh, In fact, most of the team are women uh, for this project. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Eliza Clark is a very fascinating figure. Um... She uh, went to Yale and studied uh, stage writing and all, and you know all this other st- you know uh, acted a little bit, but she has like uh, plays like the Metaphysics of Breakfast that uh, was put on at the New York Fringe Festival, and she uh, got onto the writing staff of uh, the AMC series Rubicon as a writer's assistant. She was not a staff writer yet. Oh wow! And it was those, there yeah. that she met her husband. One Zach Whedon, ah. Whedon being the stepbrother of Mr. Joss. Uh, and it was uh, Zach who uh, very early in their relationship, they started dating when they were both working for the show. She eventually did get put on the writing staff. Uh, but it was Zach after like their first date gave her basically all the trade paperbacks of Why the Last Man. And she claims that she just like immediately became enamored with it. She just immediately was like, this is the story I want to see on the screen. And this is something that, you know, either, obviously, if you are the, like, last-minute switch over, switch over showrunner on a highly contentious uh, show, you better say that. But, like, I believe it, you know. It, but it, it's it kind of, it's amazing to me that the, you know, it is the, it's the classic, like, boyfriend being like, okay, I know it's weird that I, that I have so many comic books. I know comic <laughs> books are dumb, but, like, read this comic book. Right. And I feel like you'll be like, okay, comic books are all right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, just, oh, I love this. I have this great quote from her about this very female-led project that I thought was really fascinating. I will say, when I first started dating Marie, she had all the trade paperbacks of Why the Last yeah. Man. 
And I was like, oh, no, I threw out all my floppy issues <laughs> when I had nice. to move three times. Times have changed. Eliza Clark said, I also had a very different production team than I've ever had before. It was very women-led. All of our directors were women. Most of our department heads were women. And I couldn't let go. We met once a week to talk about movies. We all made this list of things we thought would be helpful to dissect and talk about in terms of our show. It ran the gamut from Children of Men to I May Destroy You to Thelma and Louise. There are a hundred titles on that list, and we didn't get to all of them, but we wanted to make something that had a different point of view that is rooted in, for lack of a better term, the female gaze. We decided that that meant point of view, subjectivity, and detail. We get very close to people's faces. We see their sweat. We see the roots of their hair growing out. The way we approached violence and nudity was purposeful, born from character and story. Really cool. And, and actually, learning about the making of the show made me enjoy the show even more. So I'm glad to get to say this to all of you listeners out there because I think it might uh, motivate you to, to get into those uh, first few episodes. Um, the As far as the cast goes, uh, Ben Schnetzer plays Yorick. Uh, he was actually a replacement casting along the way, but he has been working pretty steadily since the early 2010s, gained notoriety for his turn in the British historical comedy drama film Pride, but otherwise fairly unknown up to now, which I think is good. And he's definitely, as I mentioned before, this like updated Yorick, this like today, you know, shithead by today's standard. Mm. And he definitely has that quality. He's this kind of dewy eyed, like, Kind of, he you, know, he, I, he's I, you know, and of course, Yorick is he's like a little bit emotional. He's a little bit whiny. He's yeah, yeah. He's he, he's named after the dead clown in Shakespeare, right? The famous dead clown. And alas, and, you know, I knew he, him well. And and he really, I think that really is a part of his character. He is this kind of ridiculous protagonist, and I really appreciate that. Uh, however, the not a uh, uh, unknown Diane Lane plays uh, his mother and the uh, POTUS uh, when the film picks up or the TV show picks up. Uh, she is well known for several films, uh, including four Francis Ford Coppola movies. Uh, and yes, one of them is Jack. <laughs> and she also played Superman's mother in 2013's Man of Steel. And yeah, I think she's a great choice for Yorick's mother in the TV show. Agent 355 is brilliantly portrayed by Ashley Romans. I think she kills it. Can we talk about how much Ashley Romans kills it in this show? She fucking kills it from the first moment you see her on the screen. I love her. And I don't know about how much, do we get into Agent 355 enough? I mean, it's a great character. It's a fascinating, really, really, uh, you know, major, major character in the comic series that you get very emotionally connected to. And uh, yeah, Ashley Romans, we actually talked about the show she was a part of that you might know her from, uh, Nosferatu. That was written by Lock and Key creator Joe Hill. So we talked about that in the Lock oh, and Oh, I thought episode. you were going to talk about the uh, Hermione Granger web series. She was a fan <laughs> web series. That. that she. It's so weird after watching her in the show, looking up the old uh, web series episodes of just like Harry Potter, like quirky quarter life crisis fan fiction that like she did. Does she part. play Hermione? Who does she play? It's a web series called Hermione Granger and the Quarter Life Crisis. It is a slice of life kind of fan comedy about like all the wizards, like being adults in the city, kind of playing drinking games with potions and like attending their friends' weddings and just doing all this stuff. It's a very like wholesome thing, but it is so weird seeing this uh, actress that I, you know, the first experiences with is as this ruthless, uh, utilitarian, like efficient killing machine uh, with a troubled past. 
and like then seeing her just like hang around in uh, bridesmaid dresses. It's very silly. Uh, the Culper Ring. The Culper Ring. I just want to acknowledge uh, it plays a big part in the show. Yes. Uh, and in the uh, comic, which is this <coughs> elite covert spy organization that answers directly to the president. It's based on an actual thing from the American Revolution. It was a group of spies uh, uh, operating within the occupied New York City while the uh, Revolutionary War was going on. They were directed and reported directly to George Washington. And um, they actually, it's, they're the ones that discovered that Benedict Arnold was going to betray the colonies at West Point. Like, they actually are a vital part of the story of the American Revolution. And in this, in the world of Why the Last Man, they've been continuously operating since then at the direct discretion of the president ever since, doing all sorts of covert ops, escorting people, uh, assassinations. And every member is completely depersonalized and divorced from their past life to the point where they're only given a name, age, uh, a number, Instead of a name, which mirrors Alter in a way, the Israeli uh-huh. uh, antagonist who also is not given a name. It's like this nice. It's like symmetry. It's poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I I love how they've handled all that but stuff in the show. Ashley Roman's performance, like, because uh, three fifty five can be kind of like brunt. You don't really, you know, you can tell that you know she's struggling to keep uh, things under control while all this chaos is happening around her, but like. The way Ashley Roman, like you can see her thought process, you really get a sense of Agent 355 more deeply as a character with their own internal life and struggles in the show. Ashley Roman's is phenomenal. And I guess this would be a good time to say, I've been watching the show with Lexi. She fucking loves it. She's never read the comic book, thinks it is really, really well done, and loves uh, this uh, character in the show. Ashley Roman's performance is Agent 355, and it, it is for good reasons. Great, great. Great another another great performance. Diana Bang as uh, Dr. Man. Oh, so glad we finally met Dr. Man. So I will say, uh, here are my thoughts now. I didn't want to talk about it up top because I wanted to really establish the, the humor of the comic and everything. I feel like Dr. Man, who comes in in like episode five, and I'll just say major character throughout the whole series, maybe episode four, mm. episode five is when we meet her. And finally, her vibe is what, sort of sends us back to Mm -hmm. the tone of the comic a little bit more. And I think once she gets introduced and once we get a little bit more kind of just the wheels start turn a little bit more on this road trip, everybody's established with each other. Everybody is, you know, and the plague itself has been well enough established for people to be moving forward a little bit more. Man, it really starts to feel more like the comic book in tone. And I think that's when I really clicked with the show because I do think you need that levity and a little bit of that quirky humor uh flowing underneath the whole thing to make it work so kudos to dr man for bringing that in because i think i needed that to to stand by the show is something i would recommend everybody to watch um another great performance is amber tamblin as an original character kimberly cunningham who is pretty much note for note uh (laughs) she's like I, I don't. I, she's just. She's just the Megan McCain. Yeah, she's literally she's Megan just McCain, Megan McCain uh, thrown in there. Which, which is a, yeah, it's a good way to. It's a good way to bring it up to date a little bit more. Like I said, instead of having necessarily just the Congresswomen's men's wives show up, mm-hmm. um, to have her in the White House. Daddy died. They had a Republican president. 
Papa died, and now she's trying to create maybe some kind of uprising or or trying to get the power back. Well, it's, I mean, this is is way out of my uh, pay slash gender grade, but the, you know, the the fact is, is that there's billions of women that, uh, you know, bought in hook line, you know, they bought into the patriarchal framing of society and thrived in it in one way or another. And they have motivations to preserve it. They have motivations to, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, for every, uh, you know, quirk is like, finally, they'll leave the toilet seat down, like whatever. There's like, <laughs> no, me- like, like children need fathers and like a strong leader is always, you know, the God and country and the fatherland. All this stuff is out there. And it really isn't given a voice in the comic. It's, you know, again, in 2002, it was uh, it was uh, liberal arts college professors that were the the spooky boogeyman of a female-led yeah. society. Another really interesting character and performance would be Hero, played by Olivia Thirlby. And especially because in the comic, when we meet Hero... She is already a member of the Daughters of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. She is kind of, and there's honestly not, and I, I, that's why I like that they did what they did in the comic or in the TV show, rather. They, they give a lot more of the journey of how she went from ambulance driver to members of the <laughs> one breasted woman cult mm-hmm. that is trying to like fucking, t- you know, lay waste to <laughs> the whole country. And uh, yeah, they do, they show that journey in the show. And I think that that is uh, is interesting. Even though she still sucks, like Hero kind of sucks. Yorick I think also she sucks, sucks a little too much it's in the their, comic. Yorick also they're sucks. They're both like the family weird rich sucks. kids with issues that like yep. have to deal with stuff in their own way. Yeah, and uh, but still, they they give a little bit more of an understandable mm-hmm. arc. Uh, you know, show a little bit more of that journey of point A to point B, so it's a little less jarring when, uh, as opposed to the comic. And I think probably the most fascinating character that they added to the TV show would be Sam Jordan, a trans man played by Elliot Fletcher, who is a trans man in real life as well. Eliza Clark said... Yorick's maleness is not what sets him apart in this world. It's his Y chromosome that sets him apart. Gender is diverse and chromosomes are not equal to gender. And so in our world, in the world of the television show, every living mammal with a Y chromosome dies. Tragically, that includes many women. It includes non-binary people. It includes intersex people. We are making a show that affirms that trans women are women, trans men are men. Non-binary people are non-binary and that is part of the richness of the world we get to play with. Elliot Fletcher said... In this world, post the event, gender is somewhat irrelevant. I think one of the hilarious things about the show is that post the event, Yorick can walk around without a mask on because he's assumed to be trans. Rather than pre the event, people are assumed to be cisgender. And so I just think it flips the traditional idea of gender completely on its head. And so I was very comfortable joining a project that knew that that ahead of time and committed to it Fully, and that is a. By the way, and most of the show, or a comic book rather, Yorick wanders the world wearing a gas mask to hide his identity. They were able to actually not have to deal with that as much in the updated version of the show, based on how much has changed about the conversations around gender and trans people. This is, I mean, this is pure conjecture, but just from listening to interviews, listening to what the creators say and not say about the entire production process. It really feels like how they were going to tackle these issues and how to do it uh, with dignity and care was a giant hurdle that the team needed to do in order to get this off the ground. And it really was uh, Eliza Clark uh, and her just not shying away from it and her tackling this thing front on. 
Um, she says in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter that the overarching arc of the show, the thing that she keeps in mind that she wants the show to be about is uh, not the loss of one half of a binary, but how it the society can escape the binary from what happened. Clark said, the point of the show is that we need all of us. I set out to make a show that was disrupting the idea of binary thinking generally, not just about gender, and to really talk about the ways that our identities intersect and how anyone can uphold systems of oppression. She also said... It is a fair criticism to ask, why make a show with a premise like this in 2021? There's no part of me that would ever want to make a show that essentializes gender or that equates chromosomes to gender. I understand I can't control how the world talks about it, but I do think that the show has an opportunity to disrupt that notion. So it's cool because on its face, you would think, oh, this show's really going to um, cause an issue or the, or this premise is, is problematic mm. in today's culture, right? Because of all the, you know, very tr difficult conversations that we have to have around it. But instead, they used it as a force of good. They, they, they figured out how to make it work for them as opposed to against them. And again, why I feel like uh, learning all of this about the creation of the TV show has made me actually more fulfilled watching it. So I'm really glad that I did. We did this episode. Jake. Yeah. Uh, for sure. It's uh, Brian K. Vaughn in, in, in a panel said that, uh, you know, part of the the long road to adaptation was just these ideas make people uncomfortable. And it is truly a deceptively challenging story to get right. Yeah, for sure. Um, he, he says, uh, you know, uh, it's it always seems like the best time to do it. These questions are always in the air. When FX first got the rights, they were like, we definitely have to do it now because Hillary's going to be president and, you know, people will be talking about this stuff, you know. Ha! Very funny. Uh, yeah, I uh, I recommend it. I recommend it. Definitely loved the comic. If you're just looking for, like, a real like a great beach read, honestly, it is just a whirlwind. You will fly through it. Um, show is definitely started off a little stodgy, I would say, a little, uh, maybe a little super serious, though it is a lot of fun to see how, you know, a representation of this happening, because it's so batshit insane, and there are some really cool action moments, and just, you know, when this shit goes down, it's, it's pretty wild to watch, um, but I do think that they have found the tone of the comic, um, at this point where the show is at, and I'm so excited to go on this wild ride. I really hope it gets renewed because I think they find they really like set into a groove by around the fifth episode, something like that, fourth, fifth episode. And now I'm like, I'm in, I'm locked in. I want to keep watching. And it's definitely an adaptation of a story that has a full arc and ending. So I hope that they keep getting to tell the story until it's fully told in television form. One last thing about the show that I find fascinating is how they handle Ampersand, the capuchin monkey. Uh, the uh, There's a couple of shots where they actually used a live uh, capuchin. Um, and in fact, this is, this is crazy. Uh, the older monkey is was one of the Marcels from Friends. Oh. Like for some of the more complicated, uh, specific close-ups, they used a former Marcel. There were apparently two Marcels that they used in Friends, a older monkey and a younger monkey. And now the younger monkey is the grand dam of uh, this show. But a majority, the vast majority is all CG. And it's very photorealistic. Eliza Clark talks about- Really well how done. One of the- one of the biggest challenges is knowing when to use ampersand um, because once you're aware of how the budget is kind of um, how the budget, how so much of the budget is used for photorealistic monkey effects, when and how uh, so much of the show ampersand is just 
you know, ook ooking off screen <laughs> because they can't afford to show them. Or they'll like, before a big action sequence, they'll be like, Marcel, get in this crate. Be in this easy to shoot crate. <laughs> like, don't be out <laughs> and about where we have to do coverage. But um, the Humane Foundation or the Humane Society, uh, when going over the pilot, actually said like, okay, we can sign off on the horse, we can sign off on the cow, but uh, you can't get our approval because of all the monkey shots and we think using a monkey is inhumane. And she had to actually inform them that was all digital. There was actually no monkey on set. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. All right. Well, I have one final quote uh, to wrap it all up from Eliza Clark. And uh, then I think we'll call it on our episode on Why the Last Man. Eliza Clark said, for me, I care deeply about how gender diversity is portrayed in this show. That way, uh, that is way more important to me than whether that pisses somebody off. I don't give a shit. But I also love the book. And I think it's about identity in the same way the show is about identity. The book is maybe simpler in its understanding of gender, but it's taking that old adage of, if women ran the world, there'd be peace. And it's saying, no, women are people and people are flawed. Mm. All right. There you go. There you have it. Our rep on Why the Last Man. I hope it inspired you to maybe go back and read the comic and check out the new show. Please watch it so they can keep making more. Because <laughs> I'm watching it and I like it. Uh, and if you'd like to check me out, if you'd like to watch me, check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, I stream Monday, Tuesday, Fridays. Sometimes a cartoon puppet joins me on the Tuesday stream to play Jackbox. His name is Puppet Jared. He's fun. Uh, he'll talk about himself in just a little bit. Uh, but before we get to that, I also want to promote uh, the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. $5 a month. We've got weekly bonus episodes. We're adding a new uh, weekly, or, or I don't know if it'll be every week, but still, uh, Wizard and the Newser. We will be doing current events uh, news stories, talking about them, throwing in our two cents. Uh, so that'll be something you can enjoy. That Hey, Holton, did you hear what Nintendo did? Let's yell about it. <laughs> exactly. So you can kind of get that type of podcast from us over on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, also $15, uh, you can join us for our Sunday study session every single Sunday, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, this Sunday, we'll be doing our production schedule. That's right. Every once in a while, we sit down now during that study session and nail down what episode topics we're going to be covering for the next several months. And uh, you've missed this one uh, because this recording is not going to come out uh, before that Sunday one. But we'll keep doing that because it's a lot of fun and we really like having that uh, feedback from our, our core, mm -hmm. our core fucking ride or dies. You know what I'm saying? All right. Jay? Really got to press the flesh on that Patreon. It is the best and slash um, major way to support us and keep this podcast going. Uh, the bonus episodes, if you haven't listened yet, you have so much great content to listen to. Interviews, uh, top lists, years in review. Like just if you need that extra whiz brew in your life, if you're kind of hitting the end because you discovered us and now you're going through the archives and you're running out of archives, don't worry, there's hours and hours of stuff waiting for you for just a, just, just a little bit, $5 a month over on patreon.com slash whizbrew. And also it helps me feed and clothe myself. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Puppet Jared, <laughs> what if, what if I also streamed, uh, but on <laughs> afternoons, uh, you know, Friday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, uh, just go to youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. It is my lovable VTuber avatar. We uh, do tier lists. We uh, play games together. Um, I talk about my OnlyFans girlfriend, fictional. Uh, we review fan art. We do all sorts of things. It's, I think it's a fun time. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love my little man. 
and how uh, those streams go. It's a really nice community. A lot. I'm making a lot of new friends on there. It's it's fun. YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared. All right. Uh, all, yeah. Puppet like puppet. Jared like uh, Subway guy. <laughs> Don't. Molest it. Don't. Please. Can we okay, know? fine. Uh, take it from me, guys. <gasps> Professor Nutter's... Uh... <laughs> You're you're a professor now. You got got hired by college. I got tenure. (laughs) I'm Uh, so happy for you. uh, No, no, it's a terrible thing. (laughs) It's a horrible thing. But anyways, I'm sorry for being a part of the show. Bye. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.